so as we had started yesterday, so yesterday uh, we had started a series where we took a section of the midnight praise. Um, it was the Sunday Theotokia, and we said Theotokia, it's, it's a praise for St. Mary, and it's a praise for St. Mary that's inserted into the midnight praise. And the church has put in place a Theotokia for every day of the week. So in the midnight praise, there's one Theotokia for every day, and they're identified by the day. So when we're referring to Sunday Theotokia, it's the Theotokia that we would have said, or that we said last night, which is the Sunday midnight praise. But there's seven Theotokias, one for each day of the week. And basically, what we did is that we took, we took the Sunday Theotokia, which is split into three sections. I'm not going to go into the explanation of those sections again, but basically we took the first uh, three parts. And basically what the Sunday Theotokia talks about is that it looks at the temple of the Old Testament and it takes different items from the tabernacle or from the temple. And then it resembles it or it tells us how these items resemble St. Mary. So basically what we did is that we took part one, which talked about the tabernacle as a whole. And what, which talked about the tabernacle as a whole, and we saw how that resembled St. Mary. And then we took it a bit deeper to how can we resemble the tabernacle as well. And then the second part talked about the ark, uh, and we did, we did the same drill. And then the third part was the mercy seat. Again, I don't want to go th like re-explaining everything just for the sake of the people that were there yesterday. So today we're going to go to part four of the Theotokia. So basically we're going to read through it and then we're going to take a couple of paragraphs to meditate on and to hopefully benefit for our spiritual lives. So it says, You are the pot made of pure gold wherein was hidden the true manna the bread of life which came down for us from heaven gave life unto the world. And then those two paragraphs, they are, they are the first half of the chorus. So basically every part is split into two. And the chorus or the refrain is composed of two paragraphs here and then three paragraphs at the end. So if we move down past the first chorus, then it says, It befits you to be called the golden pot where the manna was hidden. For that was kept in the tabernacle as a testimony to the children of Israel of the good things that the Lord God did unto them in the wilderness of Sinai. You too, O Mary, have carried in your womb the rational manna that came from the Father. You bore him without blemish. He gave unto us his honored body and blood and we live forever. And then the last three paragraphs is a continuation of the chorus. So maybe just a bit of background on what this part of the Theotokia is talking about which is the pot that had the manna. So, when the children of Israel left Egypt and then they were in the desert, well then it wasn't so easy for them to find food. So God provided for them food and that was called the manna. The way it worked is that basically the children of Israel would wake up in the morning and then on, like, on the dew that they, that they would find like, you know, like on the grass or whatever or in the plants, on the dew, you had little drops of water, right? This is what like dew is. But inside, there was this little um, sort of dough, if you will, that basically that they would like flan out and then they would bake. And this was bread that was sent down from God to them. And this was how he fed them in the wilderness. 
And the reason why it's called manna is because the children of Israel were so um, amazed or marveled and didn't understand what this is. So that they said, like they called it literally what? Like manna means what? Like question mark. So they called it that because they didn't understand what it was. But this was their sustenance and this is what fed them in the wilderness. And this was bread that was coming down from heaven. And actually, Christ himself in John chapter 6, he, meant, he did this parallel between the manna that was, that was fed to the, to the Jews in the, in the desert versus him being the bread of life given for, us, uh, given for us in the form of his body and blood. And he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So our church in her wisdom, she took that and then she built the Theotokia based on that, making that parallel between the manna, which is the bread that God fed the Jews with in the wilderness, and Christ himself who gave his body for us in the form of bread, the bread which came down from heaven. Sorry. So, having this in mind now, like I said, or like I've been doing for the other three parts, is that I only choose three of the paragraphs, and basically we meditate on them and see how we could benefit from them for our spiritual lives. So the first paragraph, if we can just move down, it says, for that was kept. So it says here, it befits you to be called the golden pot where the manna was hidden. For that was kept in the tabernacle as a testimony to the children of Israel. So basically, in the tabernacle you had two sections. You had the holy place, and then you had a veil, and then you had the holy of holies. In the holy of holies, there was a box. This box was called the ark. In that box, there was a pot, or if you want like a platter, and they would keep some of the manna in it. And, it, and here it says, so... So as Abuna is showing here, in the Holy of Holies, you had the ark. And in that ark, there was a pot that had, that had some of the manna in it. So the Theotokia is saying, and this is, this is a picture of the ark. And what you see, the cover that's on top, that, that's called the mercy seat. But the box underneath, that's called the ark. So in, the, in that ark, which was in the Holy of Holies, you had the pot and it had manna inside. So what it's saying here is that we are calling St. Mary the golden pot where the manna was hidden if the manna which was bread sent down from God from heaven symbolizes Christ who was the bread that came down for us from heaven well then the pot which is what held the bread back then well St. Mary is the new golden pot that held Christ inside of her but what I want to bring your attention to, it says, For that was kept in the tabernacle as a testimony to the children of Israel. What kind of testimony is the golden pot trying to make? Like when it says it was kept as a testimony, it's almost saying like it was kept as a statement. So that the children of Israel would always remember that there is someone who is going to take care of them and there's someone who is going to feed them. No matter what the circumstance may look like, no matter how deserted the wilderness looks like, and no matter how bad the, the surrounding circumstances may look like, 
there is someone who's going to feed them. And this is what is needed in, our, in the building of our spiritual life or in the building of our tabernacle as we talked about yesterday. Is that as I walk through life, I need to develop that confidence that there is someone who's going to feed me. No matter what. Worry, worry is maybe one of the greatest insults to God. Because it's telling Him that I have a problem and I believe or I'm not entirely sure that you are bigger than my problem. I don't have that confidence that you are going to take care of me, therefore I worry. This is what worrying means. But God commanded that the golden part with the manna would be kept as a testimony so that they would keep in mind what was done with them. And maybe this is what is necessary for our spiritual lives. To constantly remember what it is that God has done for us. Or the miracles that God has done for us. Or those times where we thought that life was over, but God came through and gave us the solution and all of a sudden everything was okay. It was kept as a testimony to the children of Israel to remind them that someone is taking care of them. Christ in the Gospel of St. Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, He says, like when He's telling us, like, why do you worry? He says, Behold the lilies of the field, how they neither toil nor spin, and assuredly I say to you, even Solomon was not arrayed like one of these. Or He says, look at the sparrows and look at the birds of heaven. No one, they're not stressing. They're not stressing about what they're going to eat. Yet your Father in Heaven feeds them. I was telling Abuna, like I, I had heard a sermon, and the priest is saying, like he's saying, like, sorry, but the guy who, who takes time out of his day to feed birds, he has some free time. He's not, he's not the busiest guy in the world if he finds time to feed the birds. But if Christ, or if God takes the time to feed the birds, well, how much more will He take time to feed us? And not just in the physical sense, but how much will attention will He give to our needs? And as Christ said, for your Father knows the things you need of before you even ask Him. So why is it that we worry? Maybe it's because we have not kept the pot with the manna as a testimony to ourselves. Usually, what happens when we enter into a problem or into a struggle and we have no solution for it, the first thing the devil will do is make us forget anything else that God has ever done for us. Once we forget that God has ever done anything for us, then it's easier for us to fall into despair and to fall into discouragement and to think that God has abandoned me. What is required for us is to constantly remember that God is taking care of us and God will feed us no matter what the circumstance is because we are His children. The pot that had the manna kept as a testimony to the children of Israel to always remind them that they are being taken care of. And in the life of St. Mary, this was also apparent. In the life of St. Mary, throughout all of her tribulations, whether it be the judging of people that saw her pregnant without marriage, or her walking 200 kilometers to go see St. Elizabeth, or the fact that her child was under attack by Herod who wanted to kill him at any cost. 
throughout all of these, maybe the highest degree of stress that was maybe mentioned is that she pondered all these things in her heart. And we didn't hear of any other signs of distress from her. Even though her circumstances were very bad and it was very, she was in a very tight situation. And maybe, actually I find it kind of funny when, when we read the story of when like, they went up to the temple and then like, Jesus lingered around and then they started walking back. Like with the camp, they started walking back. And then after like a full day's journey, her and St. Joseph realized that Christ isn't with them. And Christ was like young at the time. He was like 12 years old. So then they walked back another full day and then they found Jesus in the temple asking questions and talking with the scribes and Pharisees. And then I just found her response so cute because like she's just saying, son, why have you done this to us? And then I just had a side flash and tried to picture my mom. If she had, if she had started journey, let's say, let's say my whole family had come to Toronto. I'm from Montreal, yes. So imagine my whole family came from to Toronto and then my mom starts driving back and after like three, four hours, she realizes I'm not in the car. I'm not sure, I'm not sure her reaction when she comes back and finds me is going to be, Habibi, why did you do this to me? I think when she comes back, I may not go back with her anyways. Right? But there's a difference, there's a difference between someone who's confident that God is taking care of the situation and someone, and I'm talking about me, like my mom, she's cute. But I'm, I'm saying for me, I oftentimes think that all the circumstances of my life are in my own hands. When I worry, it's because I think that, that's, that the matter is in my own hands. But what's, what's very useful for us in the spiritual life is to split tasks with God. This is my job. This is his job. Like even like as servants back home, I remember we were like discussing and I was just saying, I remember like sitting with God and I'm like, okay, you know, service of the youth is not always easy as I'm sure you guys know. And I said, all right, we're going to split tasks with God. I do not change lives. I don't change minds. I don't rest. I don't save people. That's not my job. My job, I have a phone and I have a car. These are the tools at my disposal to serve. Anything else in the service is his job. My job is only to invite. As a servant, this is, this is the limit of my job. Basically, Christ is holding out the seeds and I'm just taking from the seeds that's in his hand. So the seeds are not even mine. They're in his hand and I just throw it. This is the extent of my job. When do I start to worry? I start to worry when I think that it's my job that the seed that's thrown has to produce food, but that's not my job. And you will find it's the same thing in every single aspect of your lives. Split the task, see what it is that's your job and what's not your job. And those things that are not your job, which you will find to be the actual thing you're stressing about, entrust it to God and trust that He will take care of it. And once he does take care of it, keep it in your mind, in your heart, in your journal, 
as a testimony to yourself that God takes care of His children and He doesn't leave them abandoned. For that was kept in the tabernacle as a testimony to the children of Israel. The next paragraph is actually the one right after it. It says, Of the good things that the Lord God did unto them in the wilderness of Sinai. Of the good things that the Lord God... So if we keep remembering the good things that God has done for us, well then what should be the automatic reaction? Is to be thankful. Is to be thankful for everything. And the church is very good at teaching us this. When she says, in the prayer of thanksgiving that we have in the Agbeya, we thank you for every condition, concerning every condition, and in all things. And even ritualistically in the church, every single ritualistic prayer starts with the prayer of thanksgiving. Wedding, funeral, unction of sick, ordination, whatever it is, everything starts with the prayer of thanksgiving, and we have learned that. We have learned that from the Bible that in all things we are to give thanks because of the good things that the Lord God did unto them in the wilderness of Sinai but wait a minute in the wilderness there was also snakes and they got like destroyed and like killed a whole bunch of people there was, there was like it was still a wilderness it's, it's not they weren't at a five star hotel they were in the wilderness but it says of the good things that the Lord God, so even if I'm seemingly in a desert where there's nothing good around me, the requirement is still that I give thanks because God is taking care of me. This life of thanksgiving solves so many problems. It solves so many problems. I don't know if you guys have ever done this exercise, but take the time to thank God for everything you have. Now, not just like, I thank you, God, for everything. Start enumerating. Start enumerating everything you have to thank God for. Now, maybe the first, I would say, four to five minutes, it's going to be like the easy stuff that you're not even going to like try to think about. It's just automatic. Thank you, God, that I have health. Thank God uh, I have clothes. Thank God I have family. I have a house. I have a job. I have a car. I have shoes. I have whatever enumerating but once you're once you're done the the easy list dig deeper into all the things that you've been given I guarantee like I've I've personally done this exercise and I was personally after after having done this exercise like for me it lasted about a half an hour half an hour straight of thanking for individual items or people or, or circumstances, whatever it was. After that half an hour, I almost felt ashamed of asking God for anything else. I'm like, you know what? You've given me way more than enough. One of, one of the most significant examples in my life um, was when my dad fell ill. My dad passed away in early 2016 of uh, prostate cancer and I remember at some point like he was like he was very sick so you know you're you're usually not you're sometimes you're not when you're not like in like the service of visiting the sick you're not used to being surrounded by someone who's sick like constantly so then I saw him in his condition 
and how like you know like this wasn't going well and this wasn't going well and you had this and you had that and everything was the whole situation was like a bit upside down and then I remember distinctly like one of like one of the nights I went back to church and and we would play basketball on Sunday night and I just remember as I'm playing basketball and like thinking of him at the same time like it just hit me like how many things have to go right for me to be able to play basketball like how many things have to align and work correctly for me to be able to play like first my brain has to be functioning I have to have eye-hand coordination that has to be in sync uh, all of my members need to be fully functional with no pain or no cramps uh, I have to be able to see I have to be able to breathe I have to be able to control my breathing uh, if I get injured well my body has to be able to close up a wound if I get cut so many things have to line up that I just think it's this is the norm it's not the norm it's a gift when you wake up in the morning and you're still breathing that's a gift that's not a given when I wake up and then I go to work and I'm complaining about the traffic well my job that I have today that's a gift that's not that wasn't a given the car that I'm taking to take to work, that's a gift, that's not given. Sometimes we feel so entitled to things that are not actually ours. And the Christian, get this now, the Christian will live his life understanding very well that everything and everyone he has are not his. That way, when God decides to take something, well then there's no frustration. Maybe there's sadness. But there's no frustration. Because it wasn't mine to begin with. I start to feel frustrated and angry at God when I feel that He took something that was mine. But in fact, it was never mine. So everything I have, or everything that I don't have, is to be thank I need to thank Him for it. You know, in our like Coptic culture, when we say we thank God, what, what do we do? We kiss our hand front and back, right? Front and back. Why? I thank God for the stuff He's given me and for the stuff He hasn't given me. Because the stuff He hasn't given me, he, he, it's for a reason He didn't give it to me. Because if He thought it was for my own good, well, He would have given it. So I'm thanking Him for the stuff He gives and for the stuff He doesn't give and the stuff He keeps away. And that's besides all the maybe a hundred catastrophes that he's preventing without me even knowing about it. To live a life of thanksgiving is of crucial importance in our, in our lives. And this is what permits us through the tribulations, through the struggles, through the problems, to rejoice in God as St. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. How? when you are thankful for everything that you have and your eyes are focused on what you've been given not on the things that you haven't been given and you think you deserve let's face it when we start to feel that God is being like unfair do you guys ever feel that sometimes God is being unfair God took this away from me he's being unfair like sometimes the youth back home they come, and, they come and ask, they're like, yeah, but you know, like, why would God leave the poor African boy hungry 
and like, you know, give us like so much money? Or why would he do like, why would this boy like die because he was killed by a drunk driver while someone else is just like roaming free and he's a murderer and he's stealing and doing whatever. And all of these questions that question God's justice. You know what was the best answer I found? If we're going to start to question God's justice and this, let's, let's say that this is one of the biggest obstacles for us to thank God. Let's, let's talk about God's justice. How long, if we can measure the existence of man on the earth, from beginning, from Adam, until the end of time, how, how many years is that? The existence of man on the earth, how many years? Someone shoot out a number. Any number? 5,000? 5 million? 5 million years. Let's assume that the existence of man on the earth from Adam until the end of time is 5 million years. Now, how much time or how long was God existent before Adam? Much more. And how long will God exist past the existence of man on the earth? Much more. So if I take those 5 million years on the great scheme of time, or like God's existence, it's about the width of my pinky versus the distance from that wall to that wall. This is the existence of man on the earth from beginning to end. So outside of, outside of like the left side of my pinky to the wall, God's justice is not questioned. No one has a problem with it. Everyone is very happy with God's justice. And past the right side of my pinky to this wall, also, God's justice is not going to be questioned and everyone's going to be happy about it and no one's going to complain. So the, all of the complaining that we do, it's within the width of the span of my pinky. And not only that, this is 5 million years. So when we're complaining that God took away my dog, I'm basically zooming in into a speck of nothing in the span of my pinky while God is looking from the back and I'm saying, oh wow, God is super unfair. That is so not nice. Why would he do this? I don't understand. Why would he be so unfair to me? He took away my dog. But we don't understand. There's a, there's a big picture. If we understand this, well then thanksgiving becomes an automatic reaction. Because, because if God did nothing else for me in my life other than come down 2,000 years ago, die for me and give me eternal life, if He does absolutely nothing else for me, zero, other than the cross and the resurrection, He's already done too much. And He's already done more than I deserve. With this in mind, anything else He does above that is bonus. And with this, the life of thanksgiving becomes very easy. Of the good things that the Lord God did unto them in the wilderness of Sinai. The last paragraph we want to take, uh, if you could just scroll down. It says, you bore him without blemish. He gave unto us his honored body and blood, and we live forever. He gave us His honored body and blood and we live forever. 
And actually, it's very good that we talk about this since we're, we just finished liturgy. When Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned by eating. This was the sign of the betrayal, is that they ate. Imagine, I'm going to paint a bit of a difficult scenario. Imagine a husband and a wife that are married and they're living together. And then the husband cheats on the wife. But he cheats on the wife in their own bedroom. How do you think the wife, like besides being incredibly hurt, but how will the wife be able, or what will be her, her reaction towards the bedroom from that moment on? She probably wants to have nothing to do with that bedroom, burn the bed, I don't want to have anything to do with this, because this was the place of betrayal. And I don't want to be, I don't want to have any sort of association to that. God, in His immense love, our God is the God of repair. Our God is an expert at taking things that are destroyed and taking those same things and making them amazing. Not when He sees something destroyed, his reaction is not like us, which is just to take it and throw it away. His reaction is to fix it and make it better than it actually initially was. So he said, that same sign by which you wanted to betray me, and the same sign that you did that brings forth death, that brought death to the world, I'm going to use that same sign to give you eternal life. That eating that you did, that betrayal that you did to me, I'm going to transform that same sign and the sign that gave you death, now that sign will give you life. You want to know what's more than that? You guys ready for this? This was mind-blowing. You ready? Everyone's ready? Everyone's ready to get their mind blown? Okay. Focus with me because there's a bit of like groundwork. The Eucharist... The Eucharist, in Coptic, uh, sorry, in, in Greek, it's Evcharistia. Alright? Eucharist is Evcharistia. Evcharis, and we know that the sacrament of Eucharist is the sacrament of? Of? Of Thanksgiving. Right? We call it the sacrament of Thanksgiving. Evcharis means Thanksgiving. How? Let's break up the word. Ev just if, like E-V, means good. Means good. The same, the same thing, we see it in the word Evangelion. Evangelion means gospel, and the gospel means the good news, right? So if means good. Charis means grace. So the word thanksgiving in Greek actually means the good grace. So what's the connection between thanksgiving and the good grace? It actually tells us what was God's intent from the beginning with regards to food. When God created man, He created him with many automatic mechanisms. Like no one, we don't sit down at the table to breathe. It just happens. When you blink, that just happens. When you sleep, there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets regenerated without you thinking about it. But food 
God intended it to be a mechanism that you need to consciously make an effort to intake. Why? Because the way He intended it from the beginning is that I would ask God for food, He would give me, I would take from His hand the good grace that comes from His hand, and as I eat it, my reaction would be to thank Him. This was the interaction or this was the relationship that God intended for man since the beginning. The word thanksgiving, the good grace, was intended that I would receive grace, food, from the hand of God, eat it, and as a reaction to it, I would thank Him for it. So what was the problem when Adam ate from the tree? It's not just that he ate and it's not just that he disobeyed, but it's who did he eat from? Whose hand did he eat from? He had betrayed God's initial design intent, which was for Adam to eat from God's hand, and he went and ate from someone else's hand. This is why, this is why, get this, our mom, the church, she's the cutest woman in the world. This is why our church tells us, I want you, my kids, to fast before you go take communion. Why? Because I'm telling God, coming to the Eucharist, before the Eucharist, I'm telling God, I don't want to eat from anyone's hand before I eat your body from your own hand. I have no interest in eating anything before I receive the Eucharist from your own hand. His body and blood is for us the greatest sign of love. And it's the greatest sign of God wanting to give us everything. This was not, not only did He take the sign of betrayal, turned it into the sign of eternal life, it went way further than that. He had fellowship with Adam as in Adam and him would talk face to face. After the fall, and after giving us His body and blood, He said, you know what? I'm not just going to restore what we had in paradise. I want to take it even deeper. It's not enough for me to just go back to me talking with Adam and having a dialogue. I want to live in him. I want to be in him. And when I will go in him, well, then he will be in me. Abide in me and I in you. The Eucharist for us represents the highest level of intimacy between God and man. It is the consummation of the relationship between God and man. That I would partake of his body and my relationship with him would be renewed. And it's given for us for what? Abuna says it in the liturgy, given for us for salvation, remission of sins, and eternal life to those who partake of him. This is possibly the whole purpose of the cross that He would give us His body and blood to live forever. What we, what we partake of upstairs, my brothers and sisters, is capsules of eternal life. What you take is eternal life. It's not, it's not just a nice to have. You know, if it were a nice to have, well then the verse in John 6 would have said something different. It would have said, He who eats the flesh of the Son of Man and drinks His blood has eternal life. If Christ has said it that way, 
then it would have been a nice to have. Communion would have been a nice to have. Is that what he said? No. He said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. It speaks volumes when Christ is being exclusive. It makes all the difference in the world. Like, if someone, if someone here, his phone or her phone dies and needs, to, and, and needs to make a phone call, well then I could be like, hey, you could use my phone. You could use my phone. Does that mean this is the only tool they have to make a phone call? No, they could use anyone else's phone. I'm just offering a tool. But suppose my phone, because it's from Montreal, is the only one that has reception and all your phones here are dead or there's no reception because you're all like from Toronto. Well then I tell, and the person is stuck, needs to make a phone call, I'd be like, oh, sorry. Unless you use my phone, you can't make a phone call because no one else has reception. Very big difference. God, when He spoke about His own body and blood, He made it exclusive. He said, this is not just some nice option. This is a necessity. This is your lifeline. The blood that you partake of, it flows into your arteries and in your veins. And through it, we can hope to achieve one day what St. Paul speaks about when he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How? His honored body and blood, and we live forever. Notice how like grammatically, you wouldn't think, like usually it's like, he gave us his body and blood, and then we lived forever. But it says he gave us his honored body and blood 2,000 years ago, and it has an effect today. My prayer for you guys and for me is that what goes on upstairs, that we would take it very much to heart. And not just like, yes, I should take liturgy a bit more seriously. No. Let's start to live and act as though what's going on upstairs is done for me personally. Personally. On a personal basis. Like, I'll tell you guys one more thing. Sorry, I know I've prolonged. I tend to ramble on. Last, last thing I'm going to say. When our fathers put the liturgy in place, what's the sequence? How does liturgy start? Let me, let me tell you, I'll run you through the entire structure of liturgy. Alright? Liturgy starts with uh, Vesper praises. So that's like Tazbeha or praises before Vesper's raising of incense. This is the first thing in liturgy. Vesper praises. And then you have Vesper's raising of incense. And then you have midnight prayers. So from Agbeya. And then you have midnight praises. And then you have morning prayer, Agbeya again. And then you have morning praises. And then you have the morning raising of incense. Then you have the liturgy of the word. Then you have the liturgy of the believer. And at the end of all of this, you have the distribution. You have communion. So it's one of two things. It's either our church fathers, when they came to establish all of this long sequence, had way too much free time and had no idea how to fill it. Or they saw that this is the minimum preparation needed for us to partake of the body and blood. Minimum preparation required is this seven or eight hour 
session required for me to be ready to come and partake of the body and blood. Like, you know, when, when I come to Abuna, I tell him, sorry, Abuna, I came after the gospel. Can I, take, can I take communion? Everyone has circumstances. I'm not judging. I understand. And people who have kids, it's very hard. I'm just, just food for thought. When, when someone says, I came after the gospel, can I take communion? They think that they were late, like, ten, like five or ten minutes late. No, Habibi, until you're eight hours late. There, there was a whole sequence of stuff that happened before. For the sake of our preparation to understand that what we are partaking of is no joke. The, the Eucharist must be central to our spiritual lives. And in the church, it is central to our liturgical life. Everything we do revolves around the liturgy. It revolves around us coming and partaking of this body. Why is our church intact and stuck together till today? Because we all partake of that one body. It's not just bread that we're eating. What we partake of is what makes us one. Is, and we talked about this yesterday a bit. It's what makes Abuna John part of me and I am part of him. With this in mind, then how you view everyone in the church becomes completely different. Because I'm not viewing people as some another person who attends the church I attend. No, this is now part of me. I pray that when, when we come to partake of the Eucharist or when we come to a liturgy, we will never understand what it is. We'll never understand the magnitude or the amplitude or the greatness of God's gift. But let us at least try. Let's at least try and make a conscious effort to understand or to, to really meditate a bit on what it is that we are coming and partaking of. So the three points. Uh, for that was kept, sorry, for that was kept in the tabernacle as a testimony to the children of Israel. So it's remembering that God is taking care of us and we have nothing to worry about for all the days of our life. The second paragraph was of the good things that the Lord God did unto them in the, in the wilderness of Sinai, which is to live a life of thanksgiving. And finally, you bore him without blemish. He gave unto us his honored body and blood and we live forever to understand that what God has given us is something beyond this world and he has given us eternal life in the form of bread and wine. Any questions or comments? Glory be to God forever.